welcome back to Shadow Light. Thank you for joining us as we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. I'm Zoe. And I'm Larissa. And on this episode, we're talking all about how free beach movements and the struggles for free access to beaches in the Caribbean have cut across decolonial struggles, workers' rights on beaches, public recourse to accountability when it comes to environmentalism, and also the well-being of locals. So I'm really excited to get into this one. And, you know, we've gone for a little different vibe this time. So we've got a starting point that I think people are going to love. But before we get into that, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Larissa. Like, I'm really excited because I feel like this week's conversation is continuing our season two's focus on home. And I think, like last week's episode, this expanded notion of home beyond just kind of like the houses or structures that we sleep in and cook in and stuff to being like it's our ecology our ecosystem it's how we live what we eat the resources that we have around us that enable us to have like happy joyful livelihoods like that is also a part of what makes home and so I think that's like a really exciting thing that will kind of direct this conversation as well and really links back to what Kato was saying last week how are you doing babes I'm good I'm really excited about this episode. This episode feels like coming home for me because whenever I'm like reading about or researching things about the Caribbean, it feels like I'm where I'm supposed to be. So I love that. Yeah, I love that as well. And like you put a question out to the to the shadow crew on stories, right? Being like, who knows yeah. about this stuff, right? Yeah, I was really interested to know whether people had heard about this kind of thing before. And yeah, over half of you said that you hadn't heard about this at all. So don't worry, we're going to get into it. Um, about a third had said they'd heard a little bit, but they wanted to hear more. And then about 13% were like clued up, know this, already done their research. So hopefully you also have things to say to us in the comments and stuff. Maybe you could school us if there's anything that we miss and don't mention. So yeah. I'm definitely um, part of that second camp. I'd heard of it before. I feel like maybe because it's been like, we'll get into this later, like it's been popping off in Jamaica like really recently, like it's been getting a lot more coverage but I definitely didn't know I'm thanking you for like putting me onto it and like learning about this because it's really really interesting and like how much of a global issue this is I didn't really realize so I'm excited to get into that later as well I didn't realize that either like how much you know I can be a little bit Caribbean centric (laughs) over here so yeah no I didn't realize how much wider these struggles were and yeah that's really interesting to me too do you want to kick us off? Yeah, where, let's where go are we starting? Okay. Where are we starting this week? Well, we are starting with a calypso tune from the Mighty Gabby. It's called Jack. Some people say it's called Jack. The beach is mine, so that's contested. But uh, let's let's play a little bit and see what people think about this. So 
The Mighty Gabby is a Calypso artist who, back in the 80s, in response to the kind of changing landscape of beach access in Barbados, created this Calypso tune to form part of the resistance to the kind of neo-colonial measures that were going on. So for context... Gabby was actually a fisher back in the day. Like Gabby used to work on the beaches or off the beaches and so had this kind of innate connection to and with those movements of people who had their livelihood in the beaches. And so back in 1982, as the National Conservation Commission Act came into play in Barbados, and they were trying to essentially established like this licensing regime for beach vendors. So it basically meant criminalizing a lot of people who would have otherwise made their living through, you know, selling things on the beach. Actually, one of the lines in the song is, I used to sell coral and lime, but Jack insists this, this is a crime. Now when I see the police face, I'm running pace with my briefcase. So like, it's, it's resistance to policing and the criminalization of workers. It's Connecting that to like the locals' connection to the beach itself. And I just think it's a really beautiful, almost like manifestation of what it is to be Caribbean and to have that relationship to the land, to the sea, to the island. And yeah, so this was really interconnected at the time because the the then kind of chairman of the Barbados Tourist Board, Jack Deere, he like made this speech stressing that locals who were having to face this new law were you know being almost usurped out of the spaces that had belonged to them and so yeah off the back of that he brought in this song and I just want to stress that Calypso is at the time specifically was one of the biggest genres like what reggae is to Jamaica Calypso is to a lot of the smaller islands and so this wasn't like a you know, random indie tune. Like, this was a big, big tune. Like, people were listening to this at festivals. Like, people were singing this out, talking about, you know, why is the state trying to take away my rights? And music was becoming this vehicle for that kind of political conversation. And so this really bolstered what at the time were community organisers who were campaigning under the banner of uh, the Windows to the Sea movement. And so they ended up commissioning a, a study of the kind of southern and western coastlines of Barbados in 1980 um, so that they could make recommendations about where they were reserve um, and develop things actually for public purposes rather than just for tourist purposes. And for folks who don't know, so Barbados um, is one of those countries that has never placed legal restrictions on like purchase of land by non-nationals. So where in a lot of places, you know, you'll say, okay, we're only allowing X amount to go to people who aren't from here. Like in the Caribbean, because of the colonial history of the Caribbean, it was very normalised that a lot of the access to buying up land or owning land in, and specifically beach land, because that is so sought after, you know, people are going to, when people are going to the Caribbean, they're not going to actually experience the culture a lot of the time. They're going to take their picture on the beach and post it back for people to see back home. Why am I quoting Drake right now? Anyway. Um, <laughs> But so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, essentially beach access is this beacon for tourism and by extension of that for neocolonialism, because it's all about who can afford to be in that space that has been privately owned. I am essentially saying all of this to say that, like, in the Caribbean, if you're a local, the level of respect, the level of 
access that you have is entirely different than what you have as a tourist. So even for people who are listening who might have experienced the Caribbean, the way that you would experience it is entirely different than how a local would experiencing it because the policing of locals the risks applied to locals are not the same as for tourists essentially and um, i think you know part of what you're saying here is like it's actually from the reading i've done it's like very di- also very different like island to island like yes like yeah. culture, like we can't put like a big like this is what's happening in the caribbean like no there's lots of like differences in terms of like policy and in terms of movements mm. like between different places I started out by looking at uh, what's going on in Jamaica because it's kind of happening li- right now and looking at the work of the Jamaica Beach Birthright Environmental Movement or JABEM. You should check them out. So in Jamaica at the moment, um, I was looking at, watched a documentary by Al Jazeera who were looking at this um, in Steertown on the north coast of Jamaica. It's just an example of what's going on where it's a historic fishing community. Locals have been surviving, you know, their livelihood based off the beach for for generations And in 2020, two huge companies bought the land, which contains the pathways to access the beach, and literally built a cement wall around them, cutting off the communities to the property. They were interviewing kind of like local people who like live off the land, live there. Um, And Norris Ascot, who's a fisherman, and his father's fisherman before him, and his grandfather was a fisherman before him, like on the same community, on the same beach. Used to be a 10 minute walk from his house to the beach. And now he has to wake up at 4.30am and bike 10 kilometres every morning at 70 years old to make his livelihood because these beaches that his community have been thriving off and also looking after as well. I think that's a really key point here. Mm. Looking after for generations, they're now being completely cut off. And like this idea is that the community members, you know, they pay their taxes, they're part of like the island, they don't understand how they don't get access to their beaches, but also the profits from these huge developments from these hotels don't reach them either. Um, and in fact, actually cause livelihood had lost and I think mm. what Jamaica Beach Birthright Environmental Movement is saying is that like this is not okay like we have to have equal access to the beaches you cannot privatize the beaches and so they're working with communities building legal action they've kind of got three active cases in Jamaica and they've got plans for 17 more and I think what they say is like it's really interesting they're fighting the 1956 Beach Control Act and it's a hangover of these colonial laws basically which say that the crown is the only place that has rights over the beaches in Jamaica. That is that right? It's like ultimately, the, yeah. Like citizens of Jamaica have no rights to these beaches, all owned by the crown. I think if that's right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the crown maintains all rights to the foreshore, while the public have no inherent rights to access it. And Devon Taylor, who's the president of of Jabam, says, you know, we want the decolonization of this land, and, and to do that, all these colonial era laws must go because it's, it really is a hangover from a colonial period. He says they no longer represent the ideals of the descendants of enslaved Africans. Um, And that was in this documentary to Al Jazeera. And I think what's really interesting is that Jabim really situate this like historically. And they talk about how like Jamaica was the centre of the Caribbean slave trade and the British government granted enslaved people's emancipation in 1838. But they did not receive when they were granted emancipation any reparations or any land. And up until... I think it was like 1944, the only people who were allowed to vote were people who had land. So voting was tied to property ownership. So landless Jamaicans couldn't vote and therefore were second-class citizens up until kind of like the mid-20th century. And saying that kind of like this 
kind of exploitation of land for division and power is kind of this continued form of, of like segregation. It's a form of apartheid. And it's directly, Devon Taylor says, it's directly targeted at the descendants of enslaved Africans. So we need an entire, we need to scrap these colonial rules. We need an entirely new model, a new framework. And another thing they said was, injustice like slavery can never be overlooked and neither can the denial to enjoy our right to beach by birthright. It is now for us to preserve the rights to access and enjoy all of Jamaica's beaches for generations to come. We believe that our beaches are not only a gateway to the world and should be accessible to everyone, but our heritage that has been robbed by special interest groups and unjust government schemes in the name of development through the creation of these exclusive economic zones. These segregationist policies are destroying one of Jamaica's greatest beauty and hurting the beach environment, which is a living mm. entity. And I think that really ties together all of those themes that you were saying. It's talking about livelihoods. It's talking about the beaches are living at living breathing entity as part of like this caribbean and jamaican culture and also this kind of continuation of colonial exploitation and new forms basically yeah i think and as you say that i think that's why it's so important that jabim are like actually terming it environmental colonization as well because mm. i think sometimes you know we it can be too easy to see these things as like siloed but interconnected issues but actually it is so directly connected because the same elites who have the access to do that are the same elites who are in connected and profiting from a connection with the you know the states the and they're in the lap of the british crown like where other parts of the Caribbean are seeking to kind of relinquish those links with the crown and um, Jamaica is one of those interesting places that is perhaps on the journey but not quite there and yeah politically well let's not get too much into the politics <laughs> of Jamaica but yeah that's uh, it's an interesting one but yeah I think also Jabam have really made the link between how that environmental colonization has led to unsustainable growth and you know ultimately community destruction which of course, should be the opposite of what any changes to the beach are doing. Like, the beaches should be spaces for community building. I also think it's interesting that they frame it as beach birthright. I really love that because that's why I think it's so compelling that they're talking about, like, a constitutional amendment to Jamaica. Like, what does it stand for? Like, how do Jamaicans self-determine what they are entitled to rather than being that being imposed on them by the Crown? I also, yeah, I was also reading about one of the people who have been kind of involved in this space, uh, Andrea Williams-Green, and she was talking about, and I think you mentioned um, before we started recording, so like this concept of this being an apartheid-like system because a lot mm. of Jamaicans wanting to access the beach need to carry IDs or they need to be like tourist adjacent or like, do you know what I mean? You need to have some sort of way to almost like prove the reason that you're accessing that space and she said the bottom line is that the exploitable potential of Jamaica is serious business and as a people we are physically and spiritually linked to the land and we will not and cannot ignore the wanton sale of Jamaica by those whom we elect to preserve and protect our legacy and for me, that was just so mm. like so powerful to understand that the spaces that Jamaicans are in, they're seen as places to be exploited rather than seen as people's homes. Mm. Um, and I think that speaks to the Caribbean at large, actually. Like a lot of the time when people think about the Caribbean, you know, I sometimes see people walking around with T-shirts being like, I heart Barbados. You don't love Barbados. You love being able to go. Your money goes far. You can be on in the sunshine, on the beach. No one troubles you because you're you're a white tourist do you know what I mean you love the experience of colonialism you mm. love the experience of existing as other in that space 
Mm. And so, like, whenever I always tense up when I see someone wearing a T-shirt like that because mm. for me, it's so it's so emblematic of exactly what Andrea said just there. Is like mm. people just see those spaces as exploitable potential. You're so real for that because I feel like you. It has to be said, and I think. You know, there's an interesting tension here where it's like tourism makes up like 20% of Jamaica's GDP. And, you know, lots of other Caribbean states also have like tourism is a huge part of their of their economy. Mm. And there's a tension here because a lot of the, you know, islanders who are leading these movements aren't saying that tourism in and of itself is a bad thing. Lots of people being like, you know, come to the island, come and enjoy whatever. But it's when you're in these hotels where you literally don't leave this hotel means that all of your money that would be really useful for kind of like investing in education, going back Mm. into the economy of local people is being stuck in a multinational corporation. And there's an article in The Guardian which was like comparing lots of different like the tensions that are going on between like land development on beaches, like property developers and, and, and like local communities and community action groups in different islands across the Caribbean. Um, and they were saying that there's this trend of Caribbean governments engaging in this invitational development where they offer like tax exemptions to foreign direct investment. And they say that they're doing this, oh, you know, we're going to sell off this, you know, beachfront, you know, land or whatever. But we swear, you know, it's going to stimulate the local economy through so many jobs, we swear. And it actually falls short because, yes, mm. the foreign direct investors buy up the beachfront land, but they block access to the beaches. And so they say, yeah, you know, you can come and work in a hotel as a service job, but your like, the autonomous business that you've created yourself as a beach vendor, as someone who owns like selling food, or um, you know you might have a craft that you sell you might have your own water sports or tourism kind of thing when as soon as you don't have access to the beach you can't do that anymore you have to come and work for this multinational corporation Mm. Um, and it says that you know the low skilled positions with minimal wage they'll offer those to the kind of locals but the higher paid management positions they'll be like yeah no come on foreign workers and they're all the foreign workers are coming in like yeah i want to work in a management position in this nice ass hotel in you know in the caribbean so the profits from the developments are repatriated to tax havens and to foreign investors and so there's no money going out or in so I think there is a real question here around ethical tourism and it's like if you are gonna but what we were speaking about before we started recording is that this is not just in the Caribbean it's we've seen it in Greece Italy Croatia but also in Puerto Rico I was reading about in Lebanon someone wrote in when we put on the stories it's happening they're based in Peru and the Philippines like some shadow readers so, like, this is not just about ethical tourism to the Caribbean. It's about all of us thinking about what does ethical travel mean? Like, how do you do that properly? Because you're so right. If you're just going there, all your money's being invested back into the big multinational corporation. It is colonialism. As you say, you're enjoying your colonial experience. And we have to take that really seriously, I think, because also the potential of your money as someone who's like a Westerner could be really impactful, but you're not. You're not even going there to enjoy the culture, you're not even there going there to learn or anything like that. It's just like as you say, to like sit on your beach towel and not be challenged at all. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it creates this dynamic where I can't remember who was, because this I didn't actually read this before this. I read this from my disc stuff, which of course is on climate in the Caribbean. But um, I was reading about the idea of Western citizens as extraterritorial citizens of the Caribbean, because when money has been spent on development, as you were just saying, like, it's almost like those people have a say over what's happening in mm. the Caribbean because those are the people that they're trying to attract, right? And so you literally become part of the citizenry of that country because you have decision-making power over what's happening in that country over and above what actual citizens of that country have. And that's why, that's, sorry, that's just unlocked for me why I really love that it's called Birthright. Mm. I couldn't articulate it but yeah that is why because I think it's this idea that people outside of the Caribbean are handed the keys to citizenship through the power that they hold 
And that power is directly being taken from citizens themselves, which I think places like Jabham are trying to redirect back to Jamaicans, which I love. That is so interesting. And it's so true. And I was I was reading uh, a writer on Medium called Damien Coombs, who writes a lot about this. And he was also talking about how basically, you know, Jamaica's in a new phase of natural resource privatisation, which he frames as a new form of colonialism because instead of kind of domination happening through like a foreign army, it's happening through like neoliberal governance. And he mm. says like neoliberal governance apparatus. Like So things like where like really wealthy people who live on the island, I think it's only like 10% white people on the island. It's 90% black people in Jamaica, I think. Mm. But anyway, they're saying that like wealthy people who aren't voted into government kind of get legitimized by being appointed as like experts on planning boards. So like they're not democratically elected, but they are legitimate in terms of being like well they're you know they're part of like this planning committee xyz which actually have a huge amount of oversight over like regulations and the visions of policy and how land is like who land is given to and whatnot so again it's this similar thing of like who is influencing the decision making well we've got these like wealthy foreign investors and you've got like wealthy tourists like where the hell are the local people represented in all of this so it's really interesting but yeah it makes the work of Jabram really important i love it it's so legal they're like they're suing them. And also a lot of the legal cases they bring are also based off other colonial laws. They're like, if you're going to use that colonial law, we're going to use this colonial law to sue your ass. So <laughs> like they were, there's I one law from that period, which is like, if you can prove that you've had uninterrupted access to the beach for your like livelihood for over 20 years, like every single day, then you, the case is that they can use that law to say that that should counteract the law that they're not supposed to access the beach in the first place. So they're like really leveraging the colonial legal system against itself, which I just think respects. That's yeah, in it. Big up, Javin. We love you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in one of the responses to what we were chatting about on Insta uh, ahead of the episode, one of the shadow community said that the colonization of nature is insidious, being commodified with mass-produced merch, enabling a transactional way for the West to operate within nature and the byproduct of litter and plastic creates colonial ownership through non-consensual environmental destruction dominated by the West and capitalism. Um, Go off dissertation in the DMs, I, I must know, say. That was, it was five separate responses that were numbered, so thank you for numbering them, whoever that was, <laughs> because I could follow. But honestly, I think this also draws us into I think stuff that you wanted to talk about around political ecology because this this can't be delinked from what's going on in terms of the ecosystems of the beaches right yes it's about workers rights yes it's about fishers rights yes it's about vendors rights but it's also about how the work that's going on and the developments that are going on are often actually incredibly harmful to the environment. And when they are privately owned, where is the accountability for that environmental destruction? Where is the kind of care for how communities have, you know, over time um, learned what those environments need from us? Like there is no space for that kind of passed down knowledge which of course is really important in like protecting um, environments like that. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because like when reading about this, it was like, oh my God, this is where everything collides. Like workers' rights, environmental rights. It's such an issue of environmental injustice, labour injustice, like like colonialism. You know, and you're like, la 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 la, ding, 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 ding. It's such a perfect case study of like how wrong it can go and how 
much our livelihoods are linked to the environment and yada yada so i just yeah i think it's it's so interesting to look into and i was reading um a piece called the political ecology of beach privatization by i'm gonna say mariangela on the political ecology network and it was talking about how the privatization of beaches is an example of what neil smith calls the commodification of external nature so the an idea under capitalism where nature is like you know, the opposite of the human it's exists over here we're over here and you know nature's over there but the beach becomes like a commodity like sealed off like the beach it's not linked to the other ecosystems it's not linked to the ocean like the beach is a distinct separate from everything else which is like obviously so untrue like the health of the beach is linked very much to the health of the ocean is linked very much to the health of the rest of the land right it's not you can't separate it out mm. um and they call this like inherently anti-ecological and that frame of mind will always lead to degradation because if you're separating it out you're not seeing it as much as part of an interlinked ecosystem which it is she speaks about how it's like an accumulation of of natural capital um, and it like drives up land and housing prices in surrounding areas, blocks access to beaches, makes the land too expensive for local people to live in um, and unable to have their beach-based jobs, which we were kind of talking about before. But it also kind of makes the coast inaccessible to anyone who doesn't, whose enjoyment of the beach doesn't produce a measurable monetary value. Mm-hmm. So it's like a broad erosion of coastal socio-ecosystems. I really like that, that idea of a socio-ecosystem. I think it's really applicable here. It's, yeah, but it just frames the, the, the beach as a yeah socio-ecosystem. So both the people and the nature, we're all one. It's all important. It all informs each other. The health of each other is important for each other to survive. Um, and when you get these big developers in here who don't understand that balance, both the social systems and the ecosystem start to collapse. Mm. And I think that that's kind of what um, Mariangela was drawing attention to. Um, which I thought was really interesting. That is interesting. Because again, those are things that are often seen as separate and so treated as separate. And like when you see the commercialization of the beach, you're not necessarily thinking about the impact on the ocean. Or, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because I would have I would have automatically thought about fishers' rights, but I wouldn't necessarily have like straight away jumped to the health of the ocean. What's really interesting is that from the research that I was looking at, kind of outside of the Caribbean, but I was looking specifically in Lebanon because people were talking a lot about how Lebanese beaches were being privatised, is that actually what we see is like a lot of coastal land privatisation happens in times of uh, like disruption or disarray. So when a country is in need of money or foreign direct investment to recover after some kind of disaster and also like taking advantage of when, you know, a country might be, um, in a state of disarray and there's like a, a lack of clear planning regulations or accountability mechanisms. And that's where you start to see coastal land getting snapped up. And this is what happened in, in Lebanon. So more than 80% of Lebanese coast is privatised and inaccessible to the majority of the population. And this, all the results started to bringing up in the chaos of the war between 1975 and 1990, blocking access to the sea and an NGO that works there says how it was like the lack of law enforcement and weak governments during and after the Lebanese civil war set 25 years ago that enabled corrupt developers to build resorts along most of the country's coast. A lot of them were built by private land developers who now neither pay rent nor taxes. And it made me think of last year when Maui was hit by one of, in Hawaii was hit by one of the worst wildfires that the US has ever seen, Mm. um, where towns like Lahaina had 80% of its structures destroyed or damaged. And before the fires had even been contained, Locals were getting calls from land investors who were offering to buy up their land because of how profitable that land would be to develop into tourist um, resorts. And so it's like really scary to think about how these private investors are waiting for 
basically climate disasters to happen mm. in order to snap up and buy land off local people. And this happened again. Um, I was reading about in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria hit the island, there was elevated erosion and more infrastructural development from land developers. And then it was kind of Puerto Rico was experiencing a period of austerity. And that was when land developers were like buying up more increasing gentrification around coastal areas. And I feel like what we're starting to see is this like reinforcing cycle of climate impact, climate disaster on a kind of leaving a nation kind of vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Foreign companies come in, buy land, construct huge resorts, which exploit the beaches, encourage more tourism like air travel, which makes climate change worse, block access to local residents who have been stewards of the beaches. And then therefore you've got local residents who are less economically re um, resilient to disaster because they've been cut off from their their way of like having a livelihood. Then another climate impact hit, sea level rises, natural disaster barriers like mangroves and reefs have been destroyed because that's what you, you destroy, like mangroves get destroyed in, to develop the land. And so you're just getting into this cycle of like disaster, land development, disaster, land development, local people less resilient, environmental systems less resilient. And like I feel like we're almost stuck in this cycle of... of Climate change being a good thing for these rich mm. investors, which is, I find really scary. That is scary, but it's also so deeply, now that you say it, it's so deeply unsurprising mm. that people are literally waiting in the wings to profit from the destruction of people's lives and livelihoods. And it's also, it's not even that just that they're waiting, it's that also these companies are actively part of this system that is causing the continued kind of destruction of these these ecosystems because in a kind of cyclical way they profit from that that is wild it's so wild and it's why all these movements of resistance are so brave and important because yeah. it is like you know it's about you know your local beach it's about your island but it's also about this global land developers global movement to dispossess local people to profit mm. off it and exploit the environment in the in the as they do it it's yeah. dark one of the things that we maybe haven't touched on is like the, the beach as well as being this incredibly important part of what do you call it the socio socio ecosystems yes i hope that's as real well as being this really important part of like the socio ecosystem is also this really important part of like the psychological well-being of mm. people who live on islands i think it's quite hard to imagine like sitting in freezing uk if you are also in the uk it's very cold but like when you're on an island beaches are like your your back garden this is like the equivalent mm. of not being able to go to a park or not having access to like anywhere to go for a walk or do you know what i mean and like I, I thought it was interesting that one of the pieces that I was reading, it's called The Beach Belong to We, Socioeconomic Disparity in Islanders' Right of Access to the Coast in a Tourist Paradise. And it was talking about the psychological impacts of all of these developments going up and literally physically cutting people off from their access to the beach and saying how like all tourists' rights to like a holiday and access to that beach is being preferred over locals' rights to do those things, whether that's sea bathing or just like those, not the commercial parts of it, but just the enjoyment. So what you were saying before about literally just existing with the beach. And I just thought, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought mm. about the beach, yes, as this really, really important thing, especially in, in relation to like 
relationship with the land relationship with I guess the ocean as we're talking I'm thinking about that as well but it's also just like being the space where you can breathe <laughs> and I, I I think the idea that all of this infrastructure that is so tied into profitability and essentially capitalism had almost made me forget that this is also just actually about people's day-to-day and yeah are you okay? Do you have a local environment that you're happy with, like that you can exist within comfortably? You know, like I think a lot of the conversation around things like 15 minute cities and blah, 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 Mm. like that I've heard of, but I didn't apply that to a Caribbean context in that way. Yeah. Or 15 minute walk is the, do you know what I mean? Like that is your actual local, local community. And I'm literally imagining if like, Someone said here, like, sorry, you can't use any of the parks. It's all reserved for French people who are on holiday. Yeah. People would, like, rise up and be furious. It's like, I can't go in my my local park because it's some some lad who's on holiday, wants to use it. And, yeah, I don't know. Like, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't fly. And so, like... And this is the thing, things that people here wouldn't accept them themselves they're so willing to be complicit in doing to other oh my people. god they love it they're like can't yeah. wait to go and do that this summer <laughs> here's my insta pics like uh me on the private beach in jamaica do you know what i mean like it's yeah. true yeah so yeah i thought that was an important dimension and it's something i probably need to like think about a bit more because mm. i think that's so interesting what you were saying there about like the 15 minute city in a different context yeah i think it, that's really really interesting how do we think about our space around us in a way that serves the people that actually live there mm. always whatever the context like yeah that's really really oh, that like just made me think about something I was reading about because of this like reliance economically on tourism there becomes this like almost legacy of slavery that blurs the line between like service and servitude and the position mm. of the in, in yeah. that, both at, like a interpersonal level but also at a structural level and like the Caribbean almost existing as a form of servitude to the west and I just feel like that that so has been the relationship and is so the relationship that people want to continue and it's Mm. like when you actually think about it it's so disgusting that like Mm. so first people want to literally physically forcibly displace people remove them from their kind of indigenous roots in a place they then build these kind of roots because I've also been reading like Sylvia Winter who talks about the ways that indigenization can also be understood as a relationship to the land and how mm-hmm. Caribbean folks, particularly Afro- Afro-Caribbean folks, have been indigenized to that land over mm-hmm. time because of their relationship with the land. So we've now done that. Now that we've actually built something beautiful out of something so ugly, people still want to displace them, yeah. us, like, it's just, ah, uh, yeah, okay. No, I think you're right. And I think when I was watching, like, the a couple, I was watching a documentary about it and it was, like, seeing the literal concrete walls that these companies would build around the beaches so that locals just couldn't have, like, access to the beach path that they've, they've taken to the beach every single day of their lives. Like the like the the, the violence of that concrete wall. And you're just like, mm. the fucking cheek, the cheek, the actual cheek of you to Isn't do it? that. Like, it's just so, yeah, I, I yeah, I feel like. I'm not even just walls. Sometimes big up armed security. Mm. Sorry? So now, <laughs> security? I should be calling the security. Like, what, mm. what are you doing here? <laughs> like, uh 
What the... Anyway. Um, how do we end this on a more positive? I don't know. I feel like... Okay, what well, I want to say about how in 2020, basically Mexico... <laughs> Mexican president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, I hope I pronounced that okay, passed a law guaranteeing that free access to beaches throughout the whole country and that anyone who prohibited public access to beaches would face fined up to 50k, basically. And there'll be sanctions on owners of coastal properties who prevented, restricted or obstructed anyone from accessing the beach. So, like, it can be done. And basically this was because it was a popular tourist destination. Hotels were saying that only guests could use the beaches as a way to ensure social distancing. So they were being like, it's uh-huh. COVID, so we're making sure that like just our guys are safe. I don't know what you don't know what you're gonna do. And then there was a huge protest in in the area, and and then basically the Mexican president was like, nah, you're not allowed to do that. Sorry. Uh, so like it can be Love done. Like it yeah, can be it done. Can. Let's do it. I'm well hopeful that Jabam are gonna win. That all the other community organisations that are pushing for free beach access for environmental protections on beaches for workers rights on beaches for access to mental health services and also the beach as mm. a, a form of um, mental health vision um are going to win they're going to win and that is just that is one key example of like people coming together and mm. making it happen so it's going to happen everywhere yeah i agree and i feel like when i was looking into this it feels like i was reading a lot about like wins about yeah maybe in Puerto Rico, I think they're still in the fight, but they organized these party protests on the beach everywhere where there was like overdevelopment. Like, and the the tagline was like, the beaches belong to the people. Um, and they were like partying to get public access to the beaches. And I was like, yeah, this is like a joyful movement. And even like what Jabem was saying, which was like, they're not even saying anything radical or crazy. They're like, we don't want anyone to let bulldoze down the hotels. We're just saying where the hotels are we should have access to the beach as well that's not like a huge ask and I would argue let's bulldoze down the hotels but they're not (laughs) even asking for that so it's like you know it feels hopeful and it feels like it's a real shared struggle globally Mm. well that's a positive note that's a positive Um, note how has your like notion of home been expanded in this episode would you say Larissa I think this has also reminded me uh because kind of on a bit of a tangent but like I've also seen uh groups of British folks in the Jamaican diaspora who are supporting um mm. those campaigns back home so it's also it's expanded my sense of home in reminding me that even when we're away from the places that our parents and grandparents called home that we can still be part of that struggle um and so this I'm saying this that people can hold me accountable because I'm gonna get more involved in supporting movements back home especially when they're tied to the crown and things like that we are obviously caught up in here in the UK and it's also just made me think that like our surroundings whether that's a beach or a park or whatever it is like that is home and like we have a responsibility to it and the same way that folks backyard are fighting for the beach like I should also be looking around in Coventry and seeing like what we should be fighting for to protect what about you what's it made you think about I love that that's so beautiful yeah I think it's a lesson to really think about how to travel sustainably. I've never been to the Caribbean, but I would love to go. It looks so beautiful. I was actually looking um, up St. Vincent after you've been talking about it so much. So I was like, this is where uh-uh. I'm have a look at it. And like, we were talking about the Caribbean. <laughs> and I was like, wow, oh my God, the Caribbean's so beautiful. But like, if I was ever to go there, it's like really thinking about how you can do that in the most responsible way possible. And like, 
I think that's kind of a lesson to everyone. Like tourism is an important part of the global economy, but there are ways that you can do it well and there are ways that you can do it badly. And it's your responsibility as a tourist to like look into what that is. And I don't feel like I know enough about it. So I think there's something there about like taking travel really seriously, (laughs) keeping it fun and light, but taking it seriously. And it's not like, you know, when you're you're on a beach, that's also kind of like someone's workplace. So if they're not allowed there, like... Why are you there? Um, so mm. think about that. Okay, so the next episode will be recorded from my granny's house in St. Vincent. Um, so we can go. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Shadow paying the budget. Amazing. <laughs> but no, I really love those reflections. It also, it's something that I'm going to take away too. Because yeah, the West and the world, when they meet, physically there's always like that those dynamics are always at play so Mm. hmm. thank you so much everyone if you have any thoughts or experiences kind of with these issues um anything any reading recommendations or anything like that please do shout us on shadows dm at shadow mag on instagram or give us an email shadow like podcast at gmail.com and we would really love to hear from you so yeah Definitely. And next time um, we're going to be talking about different concepts of homeland in relation to indigeneity. We're really, really excited for that one. So I'm hoping uh, we can also take some of the thoughts that we've had in talking about our connection to the environment uh, in relation to islands and the Caribbean and also apply that to kind of land rights and, and physical space and concepts of home for Indigenous folks around the world. I'm excited. All right. Love y'all. Bye.